Let's open our Bibles to the book of Zechariah. Zechariah. It's going to be very exciting to see what happens here. Now, as we open, let's just pray and see what the Lord does. Jesus, you are our God, and, and we worship you, Lord, in spirit and in truth. Lord, we have uh, um, such trust, Lord, that you will speak to us through the, this book. And Lord, that it's going to be a, a very exciting time for us. Lord, I, I'm just, I, I beg you to speak to me through it and that you would change my life through it, just as you changed my life uh, through the book of Galatians. And I'll never look at legalism the same way and I'll never look at, at uh, your grace the same way, Jesus. And so, Lord, I pray that you would be um, powerfully ministering to us by your spirit, Lord. And Lord, as we have praised your name, and as, as I pray that that incense rises up to your throne, God, I pray it pleases you. And Lord, you would be pleased in return to bless us with, uh, with a deeper understanding of your word and your spirit in our lives. Lord, change us and make us more like you, Jesus. In your name we pray. Amen. All right, so the book of Zechariah is what we're looking at right now. And uh, we're going to be starting in chapter one, verse one. And we're going to go verse by verse through the next. I don't know how many weeks and years it took us, 26 weeks to get through the book of Galatians. And that and that was only six chapters. And Zechariah is twice that long. So <laughs> we'll see what uh, what what happens. There's there's some more visions and some uh, some bigger chunks that we can take maybe through Zechariah. So I don't think it's going to be 26 studies, but there's going to be enough. And uh, I'm very excited to see how it goes. So uh, what we have done, what I've done is I've titled our series, um, just like our last series was called War on Legalism. And we kind of looked at the book of Galatians from that perspective each week. Uh, this time it's uh, a restoration project or a restoration project. So if you think about the book of Zechariah, I want you to think about a restoration project. And so I had the idea of, of like a, a guy like working on an old beat up car. And um, and uh, so we got, I got this image and, and you'll see it on Facebook or I think we had it up earlier. Uh, this guy grinding on an old car. And I just think that's a, a great picture for what God is going to do on us through this study and through this book and what we see he's doing uh, on the, the children of Israel uh, through this time. So let's get into it. Seventy years, 70 years have passed since the Babylonians led the nation of Israel out of Israel. Across the desert, they marched them with hooks in their mouths and, and many other brutal uh, ways they, they led them out. Uh, the ones that survived this trek, you know, spent 70 years hearing their parents talk about uh, their great God that did all these wonderful things for them in some land that they barely remembered and definitely didn't have real fond memories about. They spent 70 years living in a culture that didn't know God, didn't talk about God or didn't know his word. They spent 70 years being punished by God. They spent 70 years uh, with lion's dens and national orders to bow down to other golden images. They spent 70 years looking forward to the 70 years being over. 
And how did, how did they know that the 70 years was going to last 70 years? Because before they went, Jeremiah told them it was going to be 70 years. You see, they went into this captivity because they never gave the land its rest. See, before this, God was so faithful and he supernaturally provided in the sixth year a double amount of crops so that in the seventh year they didn't have to farm the land. But what did Israel do? They farmed it anyway. And for, those, for each of those 490 years, <clears throat> uh, they farmed that land. And so they owed the land the 70 years of rest. And so that's how God came up with the number of 70 years that they would be in captivity. So just imagine yourself as a, a, a child of Israel living in another land. You're living in Babylon. And things are, things are not terrible there, but, but you're really just kind of waiting for your life to start. You're waiting for it to start. So then, the 70 years are over. And God allows them, he makes a way for his people to come back to the promised land of Israel. And it's, it's like some exciting event. It's so exciting. And you might think that it's the end of the story, that this is when the credits roll down on the screen and they live happily ever after, it says. But that's not the case. Just like it's not the case for us when we decide to start following Jesus. It's not, and we lived happily ever after, is it? They, um, there's a whole lot of broken and busted things in their life right now and in our lives even the day after we start following Jesus. Yes, many things have been healed, but there's still a whole lot of broken, busted, rusty things in our life. A whole lot of messed up thoughts and desires. So this was a broken and discouraged people. The men were not leaders. The women weren't leaders or helpers. They were struggling to trust a God that they barely knew. Yes, he was bringing them back into the land, but the land wasn't even that great right now. There was no walls around the city. There was no army. There was bad people living there. Going into the land was not this glorious event for these people. I bet, actually, they were kind of depressed as they walked over the hill and saw the, the hill of Jerusalem and saw just the mess that it was. And they're like, I left Babylon for this? I left uh, some comfort. I mean, they had kind of gotten established in the society. They had been making money. They were okay in Babylon. And they left it for this? So, Zechariah was born in Babylon. He had never even seen the glorious land of Israel. And especially how glorious it was when David and Solomon and all those kings lived there. The beautiful buildings and the amazing cities. So as he walks into this dump after it's been left for 70 years of ruin, I'm sure he was thinking, what have I gotten myself into? I mean, I felt God's call. I felt him call me to this promised land, but there is no hope for this place. I probably would have been better back in Babylon. And then I'm sure that he looked around and saw all those faithful people traveling with them and said, well, at least I have all these wonderful people coming with me. I'm sure they're all in to this endeavor. 
I'm sure they're all here to serve the Lord, just like I am. To see what he's going to do with us. But the, the disappointed looks and the selfish complaining hearts started to be seen very quickly around him. It wasn't long before Zechariah figured out that they were in bad shape. So, what does God think about things that are messed up? How does he view a terrible situation or a rough circumstance or something that looks like it has no hope? When does he give up on a life? I'm going to keep your finger here in Zechariah, but turn to Psalm 60. Psalm 60. We're going to look at that real quick. And David wrote Psalm 60 when he was in a really broken and devastated place in his life. And look what it says in Psalm 60. Maybe this is your prayer tonight or as you've been going through some circumstances and trials that have just broken you. Maybe you could read this and say, Oh God, you have cast us off. You have broken us down. You have been displeased. Oh, restore us again. Oh, restore us again. Sometimes there's nothing else you can say but just, God, help me. God, restore me. God, you've been in charge of my life and you see how I've been broken. How I have been devastated by this situation that has come come about in my life. Would you please help me? Would you please restore us again, David said. As we look in the book of Joel, Joel, chapter 2, verse 25, there's a very familiar scripture. I hope it's familiar with you anyway, because it's a great encouragement for us. Because that's David's prayer. That's our prayer is God restore us. And look at God's heart, his answer back in Joel chapter 2, verse 25. He says, so I will restore. I will restore to you the years that the swarming locust has eaten. The crawling locust, the consuming locust and the chewing locust. My great army, which I sent among you. You shall eat in plenty and be satisfied and praise the name of the Lord your God who has dealt wondrously with you. And my people shall never be put to shame. And my people shall never be put to shame. Then you shall know that I am in the midst of Israel, that I am the Lord your God and there is no other. My people shall never be put to shame. So God has a heart to restore things. We sing that song on purpose tonight. You make beautiful things out of the dust and you make beautiful things out of us. Especially his people. He likes to restore countries and and stuff, but he likes people even better. Especially those who feel like their life is beyond repair. Who's been in that place? I have. They feel like they've messed up too badly, that they will always suffer for the mistakes of their past. God loves the challenge. Oh, you think you're such a bad guy. Wait till you see when I'm done with you. You're going to be helping old ladies across the street like there's no tomorrow. You're going to be loving those people that you thought you would hate. 
You know, we sometimes believe God is mad at them, at us. Angry with us, and he will not relent until the price is paid, until the anger subsides, or we do enough to good things to change God's opinion of us. And little do we know that God is a God of mercy. He desires, he desires to be merciful and to rebuild lives once broken. He desires it. He wants us to be his trophies. The life that's more broken, he's like, I can take that and make it even more a medal of honor for me. His, his uh, you know, pictures of his healing and restoration, he wants to be our God and us to be his people. And trust me, it's a good thing to be his people. Because what did this verse in Joel say? His people are never put to shame. And he said it twice. Just so you know, the point of this is that his people are never put to shame. Since he's the greatest God, his people are the most blessed people. I love it. And the greatest thing, and what we're going to see in this book, is that he has the resources to do it. He doesn't just have the heart to do it. It's not just his desire but he actually has the resources to do it. In Chicago, two, three, four days ago now, December 12th, or however many days ago that was, there's an article saying St. Augustine cancels the SNA restoration project. <clears throat> an ambitious plan to transform part of the historic SNA Studios complex in Chicago's uptown neighborhood into a museum celebrating the history of silent film in the city and a cultural performance space has been canceled by the owner of the building, St. Augustine College. The plan, announced in 2012, would have helped put a spotlight on the building's illustrious past as the home of one of the most prolific and influential movie studios during the early 20th century, between 1909 and 1917. The SNE Studios produced hundreds of movies at the two-building complex on the 1300 block of whatever street in Chicago, including comedies from Charlie Chaplin, Ben Turplin, and Wallace Beery. Anyone know those people? Uh, I know Charlie Chaplin. You got it. All right. Uh, but on Tuesday, St. Augustine College President Andrew Sund announced that the school was pulling the plug on the plan. In an email to members of an advisory board created for the project, Sun said the small commuter college school was unable to financially support the concept. Fundraising efforts have not kept pace with expenditures, and as a small-time nonprofit college, it is impossible to continue. You see, our efforts, plans, and resources cannot accomplish the kind of restoration needed in our lives and the lives of those around us. But God never runs into this problem where he can't financially support the concept. Oh, Brother Bob is broken and addicted to alcohol. What are we going to do about Brother Bob? God never looks at it and says, I don't know. I don't know what can be done for him. No, God has the answer. I'll fill you with my Holy Spirit and make you a new person. How about that? He never is out of resources. And I love it. 
But God's resources never fail. John chapter one, verse 16 says, and of his fullness, we have all received and grace for grace. That's how it works. That's what we're going to learn in this book. That's how restoration works. Grace upon grace. God's resources added on top of God's resources. God's work in our life on top of another God's work on our life. But when do I add something to the pie? Never. You just sit there and spend time with him and he does a restoration work in your life. That's what, how he does things. God's work done with God's resources in our lives. So if you want a summary for the book, that's it. God's work done with God's resources in our lives. This is not a self-help time. There is no such thing as self-help. This is God's help, and it works. So let's read verse 1. Zechariah 1.1 In the eighth month of the second year of Darius, the word of the Lord came to Zechariah, the son of Berechiah, the son of Edo, the prophet, saying, we're going to stop right there. This is only two months after Haggai prophesied. Haggai is the, book, is the prophet, the book right before Zechariah, and I encourage you to go home and read it tonight. Because Haggai and Zechariah were like co-prophets. So one, one taught, and then two months later, the other one taught. You know, Haggai was probably his buddy. His, you could call him his co-prophet. You know, they lived in the same city at the same time. They both served the Lord Yet they wrote two very different books. Haggai is two chapters long. And he basically says two things. Build the temple. Stop building your house. Good job. That's Haggai. He's short and to the point. Zechariah, his buddy, writes a long, mystical, with visions and dark sayings and prophecy and wonderful apocalyptic visions. Haggai is sort of rough. Few words and a lot of action, while Zechariah is kind of gentle and encouraging. Always kind of, have, they have a different way of doing things. But look, both of them do the will of God. They're both prophets with books in the Bible. Both encourage a guy named Zerubbabel. We're going to look at him a lot, and, and you're going to know a lot about Zerubbabel by the time we're done. Both are used powerfully, even with their different personalities and gifts, which encourages me because God loves my personality, and he loves your personality. In fact, he gave you that personality. And you say, but people don't like me because I'm crabby. Well, God loves you. And he kind of made you the way that you are. And he can use you just the way you are. You know, don't try to serve the Lord imitating someone else. If Haggai would have tried to write a book like Zechariah, he would have done a terrible job. He probably would have had visions of like dinosaurs eating people or something because he wasn't. That's not the type of guy he is. He just is like, do this. You guys are dumb right now. OK, you're doing it. Good job. Jesus loves you. Done. And if Zechariah would have tried to be like Haggai, he would have felt like he was being a big jerk. 
Zachariah needs to explain things and kind of take you on a little journey. And look at these angels flying around the sky. The angels, they're around us, brother. It's okay. That's Zechariah. There are two different types. Of, and so what we got to be careful of is that we don't try to serve the Lord imitating someone else. We just be you. Not the selfish you, but the filled with spirit you. The one that comes from Jesus and, you know, not trying to be someone else or like someone that you serve with. And this can be tough when, when there's really strong personalities that you love. There's pastors that I love listening to. You know, John Corson, he's, he's just amazing in the way that he teaches. And I remember a time in my life where I tried to emulate his type of teaching because he laughs like, ho, 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 ho. And I can't do it because I'm not big and I don't have a burly laugh. And he's like muscles upon muscles and a big red beard. And you're just like, oh, well, now he looks like Santa Claus because he's all gray. But anyway, I, I can't be him. So I'm trying to be me. And I like corny jokes and cheesy analogies, right? I say them not when I'm preaching. I say them all the time. I tell them to my wife as we lay in bed. And I tell her, hey, have you heard the joke about the polar bears? My mom taught me the joke about the polar bears. I'll tell you the joke about the polar bears another time. We'll use that another time. Anyway, very cheesy. I'm a, I like cheesy jokes uh, and the word of God. And that's just... Who I am. So I got I to gotta learn. And I got to be more comfortable with how the personality that God gave me. But I th- find it very encouraging that God could use Haggai and Zechariah both at the same time. Both ministering to the same people with totally different ways. And you guys remember we've been studying Nehemiah and Ezra. You remember those guys and how different they were? Because Ezra, when he saw that they were intermarrying with pagans, Ezra pulled out his own beard, right? Imagine the pain. Right, Carl? With the big beard. He pulled out his own beard because he was so upset. Nehemiah's like, bro, I'm not pulling out my own beard. I'm pulling out their hair. And it says he went and he pulled out their hair. And that was unto the Lord. So, okay. You know, God had their, used their different personalities. And both times it got the message across. So, he's right after Haggai. He's in the eighth month of the second year of Darius. Notice it's using the the king of the Medo-Persian Empire because there's not even a king in Israel right now, so they couldn't use the king in Israel to tell the time. So he uses Darius. Uh, and he says he was uh, Zechariah, the son of Berechiah, the son of Edo, the prophet. Right in there, there's a summary of the whole book of Zechariah. Did you see it? No, because none of you speak Hebrew. But I'm going to tell you it, okay? This is really cool. The name Zechariah means God remembers. God remembers. And Berechiah, uh, his father's name, means God blesses. And his grandfather's name, Edo, means at the appointed time. So even in that first verse, just in the names in Hebrew, we see the message of the entire book laid out. It's an encouragement to Israel and to us that God remembers and God blesses at the appointed time. God remembers. It does not mean that God forgets. He's not up in heaven saying, oh, yeah, my people that I love are in Babylon. I forgot all about those guys. No, that's it's not the 
it's it's um, it's that it's the point that he can. Sorry, it's at the point that he can no longer stand them being away. He can't stand. He can't bear any more time away from them. So he brings them back. His passion for them causes him to remember or begin acting on their behalf. And so we should try to remember that God sometimes remembers us. And he sometimes he's sick and tired of being away from us. And he'll start to work things in your life that may seem painful. And you may be like, why is he bringing me into a busted up city like this? And all these people around me are goofballs and losers. What is going on? What is going on? Why am I in so much trouble and strife? It may just be that God is sick and tired of being away from you. And he's remembering. And so he's acting on your behalf without you even knowing it. And, his, and then it says he blesses. His desire is to bless. It's to pour out heavenly resources and goodness into our life. He desires to do good to us. He desires us to have wonderful relationships, marriages, children, He desires it for our good and he brings those things in our life in his own timing and in his own way. You might be thinking right now, though, I don't have these things. I can't have children or my parents are gone. Yet those even aren't obstacles for God. You see, he even blesses us with the church. It can be, and some of you know, it can be a family that's so close that it's actually likened to a body, one body with many members. And it's likened to the body of Christ, who's a father to the fatherless and a husband to the widow. So even if your circumstances are so painful and you feel like there's no fixing your circumstances, it's not an obstacle for God. God can give you children back in the children's ministry. He can give you a mother or father with some old person here in the church. Or younger person, I don't know. He can do it out of a rock if he wants. He can do it. Oh, but my relationships are... God can heal relationships. And then the last name, Edo, is at the appointed time. It's coming. It's on its way and nothing can stop it. Just remember... You will never be able to learn or exercise patience after these blessings come, can you? So rejoice in all the time before the blessings as well as when they come. Then when they come, your thankfulness and joy may be even more full. I know that for some of you, uh, the wait is long, and I get that. It It can seem like the appointed time is the wrong time. When am I going to be blessed? But just remember, this life is just a vapor. And it will soon be over, and then we get to go to heaven, and we get to see all the amazing, perfect timing of God. And that his decisions were the absolute best for our lives, and we will love him even more for it. So be encouraged. Now look at verse 2. All that was just from those names. Isn't the word of God wonderful? I just, I'm so blessed by the word of God. Verse 2, the Lord has been very angry with your fathers. Therefore say to them, Thus says the Lord of hosts, Return to me, says the Lord of hosts, and I will return to you, says the Lord of hosts. Do not be like your fathers, to whom the former prophets preached, saying, Thus says the Lord of hosts, 
Turn now from your evil ways and your evil deeds. But they did not hear nor heed me, says the Lord. Your fathers, where are they? And the prophets, do they live forever? Yet surely my words and my statutes, which I commanded my servants, the prophets, did they not overtake your fathers? So they returned and said, just as the Lord of hosts determined to do to us according to our ways and according to our deeds, so he has dealt with us. Let's take that a little bit at a time. The Lord has been very angry with your fathers. See, the Lord wants them to understand, and Zechariah wants these people to understand, all these winners that are with him, he wants them to understand that God knows this situation. That he understands it. That things have been bad. And things have been bad for a long time. So bad, God says, that I'm angry about it. So even your fathers, even their fathers as they were going through the um, time in Babylon, even their fathers weren't doing what's right. So these people couldn't even imitate someone who was doing what's right. You know, if we grew up with great fathers and great family that taught us about the Lord, it's a great benefit to us because we can imitate that lifestyle even before we understand it, even before we make it our own. We can just imitate theirs and we'll see blessings in our life because of it. Yet, they didn't have that. Then he says, Therefore say to them, Thus says the Lord of hosts, Return to me, says the Lord of hosts, and I will return to you says the Lord of hosts. So he says to them, it doesn't matter what you've been through and what you've done. This is about you and me. So don't complain about your parents. Don't complain about your bad examples. Don't complain about all the Babylonian people that told you all the bad stuff. This is about you and me. Zachariah's trying to get their eyes on the Lord. And I encourage you guys, don't ever let your relationship with the Lord be about anyone else. It's, it's, it is sad that your parents were bad examples of God and that you may feel like it's getting back at them to stay away from God. But it's not. It's just you and him in the end. Just like it was you and him in the beginning when he knit you together in your mother's womb. It's you and him in the end. But I have too many sins, you say. And Isaiah chapter 44, verse 22 says, But I have blotted out like a thick cloud your transgressions and like a cloud your sins. Return to me, for I have redeemed you, says the Lord. So your sins cannot be an excuse. Your parents can't be an excuse. Your life can't be an excuse. Your sins can't even be an excuse. So what excuse is there for not returning to the Lord? Circumstances discourage us and we wonder why God seems so far away. Just like these people here in Jerusalem. Let me again describe what they're walking into and probably why they felt like God was far away. The land was desolate after 70 years of neglect. The work was hard to restore and rebuild everything. They didn't have a lot of money or men. They suffered crop failures and drought. Hostile enemies resisted their work and they remembered their easier life in Babylon. So the question is, how far away is God? And the greatest quote I've ever heard on this is that no matter how many steps you run away from God, he's only one step back. I love that one. 
I love it. Now I have to say, sometimes in my life, I wish God would make someone return to him. Make me return to him. But he's this, ah, perfect gentleman. And he prefers love to motivate a return to him. There was this elderly couple that drove down the road in their pickup truck, just like they'd done for 40, 50, 60 years. I don't know. They were old. And as they drove, the wife noticed that some younger couple, you know, in another car next to him, they were all cuddly in the front seat. They were on a bench seat, and the girl was up over on her husband, you know, just just snuggling him while they drove. And he's just like, yeah. And the old, the old lady's like, why aren't we like that anymore? What, what happened to us? And her husband, he said, I don't know. I'm sitting right where I was before. It wasn't me that scooted over. If we're far from God, it's not because he moved. Verse four. Do not be like your fathers to whom the former prophets preached, saying, thus says the Lord of hosts, turn now from your evil ways and your evil deeds. But they did not hear nor heed me, says the Lord. Your fathers, where are they and your prophets? Do they live forever? Yet surely my words and my statutes, which I commanded my servants and prophets, did they not overtake your fathers? So they returned and said, just as the Lord of hosts determined to do us according to our ways and according to our deeds, so he has dealt with us. Zechariah charges God's people to not only rebuild the temple, but to rebuild their relationship with him and to learn the lessons from their fathers. So Haggai was real big on getting the people to rebuild the temple. You know, they were building their own houses and using the wood they should have been using on the temple to build their houses. And Haggai was like, get on the ball. And they did. They did it. And Zechariah is a lot more personal. He's like, people, this is about you and God. So return to him. And then he says, this is your time now. All those people who we're talking about are dead. But what, what are you going to do with the short life that you've been given? Is God angry at you? Do you feel like you're under his thumb? You know, he is grieved by sin. Our sin, their sin, everyone's sin makes him mad. But if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, he is not angry with you personally any longer. How? How can that be? Because of a word, propitiation. Have you ever heard the word propitiation before? It's one of the most important words in the English language, and I'd say 90% of the people don't have any idea what it means. But when you learn what it means, it's how we can answer the question, Why is God not angry at us? Why is he not angry? I've sinned. That should make him angry. And it does make him angry. So why do I somehow get off the hook? 
How do I somehow not get the brunt of his anger? Propitiation. It's mentioned four times in the Bible. I'm going to read the verses to you, and then I'll tell you what it means. Romans chapter 3, verse 25. says, Jesus, whom God set forth as a propitiation by his blood through faith to demonstrate his righteousness because in his forbearance, God passed over the sins that were previously committed. I'm going to read Hebrews chapter 2, verse 17. Therefore, in all things, he had to be made like his brethren, that he might be a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. First, John two, two says, and he himself is the propitiation for our sins and not for our sins only, but for also the whole world. And 1 John 4.10 In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Now those are some pretty amazing verses. Those are some pretty burly verses that you've probably heard and they all use this word. So tell me, how have we gotten so far without understanding what the word propitiation means in the church, in our lives? How has it happened? Maybe you do understand. Maybe you looked it up when you first came across this and you're like, propitiation? What does that word mean? And you went to your Bible dictionary and it said, to satisfy the wrath of. To satisfy the wrath. Wow. So, God set him forth as a propitiation by his blood. So God beat Jesus until he was no longer mad. He cut Jesus until he was no longer mad. He destroyed Jesus until he was no longer mad about any sin in the whole world. Because he says in 1 John 2, 2, he made himself is the propitiation for our sins, and not only ours, but the whole world also. God has a reason to be mad. Sin is a direct rebellion against him, and one sin it deserves the punishment of death. And he gets angry when a little child is, is beat. When someone is molested, when someone is murdered or raped, he has more anger in his heart than any of us could ever imagine. Yet, his wrath, his righteous anger, was satisfied when Jesus allowed him to pour out that wrath on himself. Are you kidding me? Wow. What amazing love. And so we look in Zechariah and we hear the, the pleading and the passion now in, in his voice, in God's voice, when he says, Return to me. Come back to me. 
This is about you and me. I am not angry. I am not angry at you. Just come back. Wow. Propitiation is seriously the best word ever. When we apply it to our lives and say, God will never be angry at you because he got mad at Jesus for you. So now what can he do? He can just accept you as a child running into his arms. No matter what you've done, where you're at, and how far you've run, he just accepts you back. And he gives you a big hug and says, welcome back. I love you. The price has been paid. It's done. It's done. And that's amazing. And that's why there's millions of followers of Jesus. Because they've learned that. So, propitiation. God is not angry anymore. In the book of Zechariah, we have just gone through the first section of the book of Zechariah. There's four sections. We've done the entire first one tonight. It was six verses long. The next one is six chapters. So we're not going to finish that one next week. But let's pray. And if you have felt that there is something that God deserves to be angry about in your life, I just want you to sit back and think about these verses that we mentioned about Jesus satisfying that wrath. And then just come freely back to the Lord. And return to him, as Zechariah said. He's not angry. He was angry. But he took care of it when Jesus died on the cross. So let's pray. Jesus, Lord, I've been wrong. I've been wrong so many times. And I feel like I deserve uh, you to be angry with me. But Lord, you, you are a God of mercy and your mercies are new every morning. And Lord, you did the dirty work to make me your child and your son who has nothing to fear. And God, I, I will forever praise you and honor you for that. And Lord, I want to just run, run up into your arms again and allow you to hold me, God, and to heal me and restore me back to a close relationship with you. And I pray for all those in here tonight who have struggled or who have have been dealing with pain and hurt and maybe have even been trying to make it right in their own strength. And I pray we would all just surrender. We would all surrender to your love and what you've done on the cross, Jesus. Please fill us with your Holy Spirit again. In your name we pray. Amen.